Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. I believe that there is a secular prophet who says he looked at his wrist and he got time today. Is that, is that something I know? Is that true? Sometimes I get in the middle of worship and I feel the same way. I got time for anybody got time for him today? I said, do you have time for him today? Amen. And it's our core value of worship today. How ironic. <laughs> let's uh, look to the screen really quickly and let's read through uh, together. Um, the last core value um, that we have, and we got a couple slides that we will, you know, get popping, locking up there. There we go. Let's read together. What are our core values and what do they mean? Worship, glorify the God of the Bible faithfully, passionately, and reverently. Witness, testify to the person and work of Christ. Work, Work to equip the saints, serve the city, and cultivate beauty. Wed, unite divided communities. Walk, live with one another in truth and love. Hey, I'm not going to, we're already kind of pushed on time, so I'm going to press on through. We're going to deal today with the core value of worship, that is to worship the God of the Bible here faithfully, passionately, and reverently. Uh, We'll move kind of interchangeably through those Um, Three, I believe, adverbs there, um, faithfully, passionately, and reverently. Um, But we'll take our text today from Exodus, the ninth chapter, um, verses 1, and I will read it for you. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. Let's read together the last tag and the one familiar refrain that we've heard for a long time, whether you were on Easter watching Ben-Hur and Moses or you've been a Christian for a while, you know these words. Ready? Let my people go. One, two, three. Let my people go that they may worship me. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Hey, um, there's really... One big idea that I want to kind of get across to you, Um, you've heard many sermons on worship. You hear me lace worship into almost everything we probably preach around here um, because uh, I think you'll see later later that worship is really, really important. Um, But it is because we are his people that he deserves all of our gratitude and all of our submission. And our primary duty is to worship. And it's the primary focus of our growth is to grow in worship. Right? Because we are his people. He deserves all of our gratitude and he deserves our unrelenting submission. And our primary duty and, work, uh, and, and focus is our worship. And our primary area of sanctification and growth is our worship. Can I get an amen, somebody? 
So we're going to take a look at this statement. We're going to try to understand and frame up what it meant to these people who were hearing it in Exodus. We're going to try to extract from it what it means for us today as we seek to be a family of followers who bring shalom to the Summer Avenue community. So first of all, let's just deal with what in the world is this request that we're getting? What is God asking uh, his people to do when he says, let my people go so that they may worship me, right? Um, I have, um, there's several definitions for worship. Um, one that I've always held on to was just the, the idea of ascribing worth to, worship, right? Uh, to take uh, and appraise properly um, that object and give it the adequate or the accurate amount of worth that it is due, right? Um, but for this sermon especially, I have found a more helpful definition from Brother Esau Macaulay, right? He says this, that worship is the reverential response of creation to the all-encompassing magnificence of God. I'll read slow so maybe you could write it down. Worship is, you got that part? <laughs> the reverential response of creation to the all-encompassing magnificence of God. I've heard it put another way, that worship is a response to truth. That's essentially one, it's a derivative of what Esau is trying to get across here. That essentially there is something magnificent, there is something true, there is a standard-setting thing, we call it God, and we have a response to it, and it is called worship. And for your edification today, I think it's really helpful if you would add to your understanding of worship and really maybe even just simplify it. It is a response, period, boom. It is a response. We look at something, we behold it, we respond to it in worship. Esau goes on to say in the Lexham Bible Dictionary, I'll just share a couple thoughts and ideas that came straight out of that dictionary that I think were very helpful for my own personal life, I think it'll be helpful to you. It just divides it into two kind of recurring concepts that happen in both the Old Testament and some that happen in the New Testament. When, re uh, when referring to worship in the Old Testament, here's some concepts that are constantly coming across. When people are talking about worship, they are talking about some, sometimes bringing forward some kind of offering to God. When worship is being discussed, they talked about this idea of lifting up or exalting or bringing praise to God. When people are talking about worship in the Old Testament, they talk about celebration, right? Um, when people talk about worship in the Old Testament, sometimes ideas of this idea of bowing down in God's presence is coming across. Esau says that it's some kind of outward display of an inner attitude of reverence towards the Creator. When you bow down, I know y'all probably, some of y'all seen it, at, some of y'all seen it probably at the ad. Oh, why are those people bowing down, right? What they are trying to do is give you an object lesson of their heart's disposition, surrender. Maybe you ought to add that to your worship bag sometimes. Maybe in the morning before you get ready to go to work before you drink your cup of joe, your Folgers, maybe you just bow down in his presence. It's an appropriate act of worship. 
in the New Testament carries over many of the same ideas about worship. Proskuneo means to bow down as an act of worship, right? Kempto signifies the bending of the knee. If you watch uh, these time films like I do and all these old, uh, uh, you know, first century kind of movies and war movies, you know, who's going to bend the knee, right? Do you know that bending the knee in worship, right, is a, it's an act of worship, right? Who do you serve? That's in the New Testament, right? This idea of giving God glory, doxazo, right? Or an act of praise in the New Testament. Eulogio, it's blessing God, right? And how about this familiar language that is used both in the Old Testament and the New Testament? What's the highest praise? (laughs) Hallelujah, right? Which simply just transliterates praising Yahweh, right? Now, one of the things we know in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when we say hallelujah, oftentimes that language is done when we sing, right? Which is why we oftentimes, and I think appropriately, when we start talking about praise, we automatically start thinking about singing. When we talk about worship, and y'all knew that Pastor Tim was going to preach about worship today, y'all like, oh, man, they going to sing all day. Because I'm going to sing, and then when Pastor Tim get up there, he going to sing because we're talking about worship. And guess what? When we sing, we are worshiping. But I hope one thing that comes across today is that worship is no less than us singing praise to God, but it is so much more. So much more, right? Now, one of the fascinating things as we come back to our text today, when they are in Exodus 9, He's saying, let my people go so that they may worship me, right? One of the things that we know about the words that are used in Exodus um, that are translating worship, they also are used interchangeably as service. So in the ESV, we read, I read to you from the NIV, it says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you were reading from the ESV, it would say, let my people go so that they may serve me. This idea of worship and service, interchangeable in the Old Testament. And it's really, really important that we understand that. Because when we think about worship today, I want to keep two things in your purview and in your mind. That worship is both the traditional way that I think we understand it of honor, praise, celebration, high regard, right? It's got that thing going over there, right? They're celebrating. There's Ephesians, uh, Exodus 5.1, where before they even get to, I think, the plagues and letting God's people go, God says to Moses, hey, tell Pharaoh, let my people go into the wilderness, I mean, into the desert so that they may make a feast to me. I just want my people to go and celebrate me. Celebration. Praise, honor, part of worship. But then there is the serving part of worship. The submission, the bowing, the bending, the fealty. My life is yours. I am yours, right? And we hold these two things in tandem because they are both working together as the two primary concepts that really envelop the idea of biblical worship. Macaulay kind of closes his portion on worship by saying people both bow before God and lift him up in praise and wonder. And that's what we're trying to get at when we worship, right? So let's go back to it. Let my people go so that they may worship me or praise me and serve me together. So what's the context of this verse? I gave that, I've been hinting at it a little bit, but essentially this verse is coming from Exodus, right? And this is the pre 
um, wandering kind of portion of Exodus. This is the plagues, right? And if you don't know it, you need to understand today that this idea of worship is really the crux. It is the principal issue to me in Exodus. This is what is at stake, right? These words are given to Moses to deliver to Pharaoh because Pharaoh, <laughs> Pharaoh is the dude who is now governing or in charge of kind of both the Israelites and his people. He subjugated them to all types of harsh labor and all of these things that will end up building his kingdom. In Exodus 9 and 1, there is now, I think, oh God, I can't even remember, maybe the fifth plague, but this is the idea of the plague on the livestock. But I really could have picked that verse up, let my people go so that they may worship. I could have picked that from anywhere, literally, from Exodus 7 to Exodus 12, because that is the common refrain. But in Exodus 3, Moses gets the word from the Lord at the burning bush. God reveals himself to Moses, and it was there that it began. And God commissioned Moses to go to the ruler who thinks he's in control. Amen, Lysen and tell him that those people who he thinks he's subjugating actually belong to me. And they belong to me for my praise, my honor, and my glory, and my service. They belong to me for my worship. Do you belong to God? Were you created to worship him? I think one thing I love, I didn't want to... I was tempted. I, you know my favorite part of what a beautiful name it is. Y'all know what it is? Ooh, you have no rival. That's my joint right there now. We can go in for a long time on that phrase right there. I want you to know this. What did I just tell you that the primary crux of Exodus is? It is worship, y'all. And everywhere that worship is at stake, there is always a showdown. This is why you got to understand that worship is so much more than singing. There is a cosmic showdown going on. There is a cosmic dispute over the copyrights and the honor of this world going on when it's time for worship. This is not whether you can sing or not. This is not whether or not you like symphonic music or not. This is not whether or not you get down with hip-hop and gospel or not. This is about the glory of God. So every time you sit there and you get trapped in your mind about what you're going to do, what you're not going to do, you are missing out on the opportunity to get you a lick in on this cosmic little soiree we got going on here. I'm not playing games when I'm worshiping. It is so much bigger than my preferences. This is about my God who deserves everything he deserves. Man, we were literally, we were at the lake. We were sitting down. We had a moment together just literally weeping over our sins with all the things we struggle with. It was me and a couple other staff. Uh, Cope was out there flipping people all across Horseshoe Lake, man. It was crazy, man. We got to keep him off the jet skis, man. Keep him off the jet skis. But we was over there. We were sitting down. We were talking. And we, we just had a moment just talking about the things we struggle with. And then we, somebody said, well, you know what, man? Isn't that so amazing of God? Hey, hey, being tempted in every way but never sinned. 
Can you imagine all the junk you deal with, Peterson, all the junk I deal with, you deal with, Sierra, all the stuff you deal with, Jessica, and he sat and took it all and failed not in it? Let me just just help you understand something. Ain't nobody give Jesus the authority. He earned it. Talk about getting it out the mud. You don't know what getting it out the mud means. He got the nails in his hands to prove he earned it. He earned the right to be called king of the universe. He's more than beautiful. He is mighty. And he's worthy. Come on, man. Who deserves the glory? Who deserves the honor? Who deserves your every breath? The one who gave it to you. And the one who redeemed you. Let's go back to Exodus, though. Let's do some more wordplay. What's the cool thing is that that same word that they use for worship that we also establish can also be translated as service is the same word that is used for both labor and work imposed by Pharaoh. So let's pause. I just told you, ESV will tell you, let my people go so that they can serve me. NIV say, let my people go so they can worship me. Well, guess what also? That same word is being used for. Pharaoh and what he is requiring from God's people. If you don't think this is a showdown, you are missing the point of Exodus. D.A. Carson says that it's used, highlights that both Pharaoh and the Lord were vying for sovereignty over Israel, making a face-off inevitable. This was a showdown. Who's really in control, Pharaoh or the Lord? Let's talk about who is commanded to worship. That says, my people. He says, let my people go so that they can worship me. Isaiah 44, 21 says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Who are God's people? They're the people that Isaiah 44 says that, hey, I formed you, the people who were created by God. You were created by God. Do you understand that's your identity? I was created by him, right? And those who have been created by him, all the image members, their primary function is worship, but it's being co-opted. He gets to the end. He says, for I have redeemed you. He says, return to me, for I have redeemed you. Do you know your identity is redeemed, that your primary identity now, let the redeemed of the Lord. What does that mean to be redeemed? It just means you're bought back. Is that your story? That you have literally been bought back off the slaver's block. You were destined for more enslavement, more entrapment. You were destined for hell. But you, you have been bought back. Rescue from the kingdom of darkness. If you were someone at my dad's church, one thing he says at nausea, 
He goes in, he starts telling this story about how he almost lost his family, how he had an affair when his children were less than five years old. And I bet you, if you've been to that church, you have heard it for at least 25 years because he tells it over and over and over again. And I think I finally come to the realization it's, he tells it over because it's the story of how he found his true redemption. He never lets go of it. Is that the primary way you understand yourself and your position in Christ? Me and Gina were laughing at that old quote and how fitting it was that the only thing that you brought to your salvation was the sin that was necessary for you to be forgiven. And is that the primary way you understand your position in Christ? Redeemed. You've been redeemed. Another primary aspect of redemption is just the rescue. Once I was teaching the 3LR kids, I'm, I'll be 40 in October. It's about seven, eight years old. I was drowning in one of them wave parks. Y'all know the ones with the woo, the woo, you know. You know, you get the closer you get to the wall, you know what I'm saying, it's about 10 feet and the waves are big. And you know, the one of the little kids was like, Pastor Tim, you didn't have on a life jacket? I was like, I ain't have on a life jacket. I just had one of those inner tubes, right? And I was just floating and nobody wasn't paying attention to me where I was going. So I was way down at the end of the pool. I'm just floating and floating. I flip over. And man, I was drowning. And I remember telling the kids, I was like, man, I, I remember, hey! And I just remember sucking water. Now, I've told this story many times, but when I told it to the kiddos about a month ago, it was so strange. I started weeping uncontrollably. It was the first time in about 36 years or whatever, how old I was, 33, that I really was able to tap into how terrified I was. I didn't want to die. I didn't want to die. I was scared. And if you don't understand your redemption like that, then you don't get it actually. Is there anybody in here who doesn't want to spend eternity separated from God? The thought of his spirit not living in me terrifies me. The thought of not knowing the truth of his love. No. We've been redeemed. But not only were you redeemed, you're special. You're special to God. Later on in Exodus, as they get ready to do covenant business, Exodus 19.4 says, You have seen for yourselves what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you back to myself. Now, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you will be my treasured possession. Everybody say treasured. Out of all the nations on the face of the earth, and unto me you shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Listen, we understand this about our doctrine of salvation. We know that there is no, nothing we could have done that we could have earned our salvation. But just because you didn't earn your salvation don't mean you're not special. You are special in the eyes of God. And this is not a scripture for all image bearers. This is a scripture for those people in verse 5 who will indeed obey his voice and keep his commandments. They get the right to be called sons of God. They get the right to be called treasured possessions. Isaiah 43, 21 says, The people who I formed for myself, 
my people, the ones I created, the ones I redeemed, the ones that I treasure, they will declare my praise. They will worship me. Do you understand the gravity of what it means to be his people, Avenue? Do you understand what he calls you to when he says, you are to worship me? I spent some time with a friend of mine who came to visit me last week and says that, Tim, you know, life in the spirit is really gratitude and surrender. And over my cheesy fries, I said, man, hold on, let me get my napkin and write that down, brother. <laughs> that was good. But today, that's exactly what worship is. It is both celebration and surrender. When God calls us to a life of worship, he is calling us to a life of honoring him and a life of submission to him. That is worship, y'all. Worship is not a checkbox like the other commandments. There are other things that the Lord calls us to, sexual purity, right? Um, behavioral, behavioral obedience, um, uh, hearts and attitudes that are in right alignment. But worship is not like the rest of those. Worship is the central command of Scripture by which all of the other ones are just tributaries of worship. That's why if you are being obedient, you are worshiping. If you are serving, you are worshiping. If you are studying the word, you are worshiping. Worship is the big umbrella. Pastor, are you making that up? What is the first command? You will have no other gods before me. Jesus, break that down for us. Let me just tell you what the greatest commandment is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And for the saints of old, one commentary says this, that for the saints of old, lest we have a temptation, uh, a temptation to put a divorce between our, the, the outward actions and the heart disposition, the ritual life of devotion was emblematic of a whole life given over to God. We laugh about this. But we always talk about, you know, I ain't got to do what they do. God know my heart. Now, I don't know, that, that might just be my context where I come from. Might not be your context, it might be my context. Right? That's a familiar refrain. We don't have to do that because God knows my heart. So it kind of absolves them from ritual practice or things external because God don't look at the external stuff. He know my heart. He know I'm worshiping him. I call your bluff. Because your outward actions should confirm your inner devotion. Don't fool yourself if you don't have receipts. We know what's going on inside here, right? On the other hand, just because you make yourself sweaty and you got a headache because you hear every time the church open and you just got paper cuts because you read so much scripture, amen. That don't mean that you got inner devotion. Typically, we're both kind of teetering and struggling with one or the other, and we need to bring one in balance. Never one or the other. We just need to bring them in balance. 
And that's why we waste our time. Don't participate in that fight, y'all. Oh, they just a holy roller. They lazy Christians. Man, just keep your head to your plow and get about it. What you doing? And does your outward actions match up to your inward devotion? I think that's just a good, we preach that. Psalms 24-3, right? Clean hands and a pure heart. We want to grow. I said this last week. We want to grow in our corporate worship and in our private worship. That's, I, that's the bar. And what does that look like? It means more lives of more gratitude and more celebration, and it means more lives of more surrender to the Lord Jesus. And if we're trying to figure that out, that should pretty much well keep us out of everybody else's business. Because we'll constantly be looking and be like, oh, man. Oh, Lord. Either we'll be busy praising him or we'll be busy repenting because we keep trying to hoard stuff the Lord trying to. Okay. Okay. And let me tell you what that looks like, though. If you come to the Lord Jesus and you want to worship him, but you already have a defined limit on what you're going to offer him, You're not a worshiper yet. So let's just put it in both categories. I'm going to worship Jesus in my private life. But what I do in my sexuality is my business. Okay. I think you've missed the whole point. What I do with my money is my money. Okay. I think you missed the point. Who I you? If you are coming to God, telling him the terms of your worship, you're not worshiping him. You come to the corporate worship. I worship God. I just don't do. Okay. I'll let you take that up with the Holy Spirit. If you come to the one who you are supposed to be submitted to with the terms of your worship, you have missed it. Do you understand that, y'all? The idea here is that, oh, no, no, no. What I know that my temptation, we're actually a little, when we run through Exodus, we're actually more predisposed to be more like Pharaoh than we are true Israelites. Who is this God? Who's blocking me from doing what I want to do? Do I have to submit to him? That's more our disposition. So if you think you have already arrived at worship, we need to have a little chit-chat. This is what the whole Bible's about, which means we're going to spend a lifetime trying to figure out how to do it better with pure hearts and with more of our hearts. Sorry. So, here's some questions to think about as we grow. Throw those up, Martez. I want our church to grow in our worship, both corporate worship, private worship, our celebration, and our surrender. 
So some things to think about as we grow in our worship. How often do we give him thanks, honor, and glory? How often is his praise on our lips? Is it just when we gather? Are you finding reasons to acknowledge all the amazing things he's done? Is your worship, is your offering appropriate in response to his splendor? Y'all know, y'all know them people, you know, you got their name at Christmas, and the Secret Santa, whatever, and you, you hit them up with the Gucci bag, and they hit you up with the Kroger bag, you know what I'm saying? Uh-oh. Hold on. I just bought you the Coach Special Edition. Oh, man, let me take you to the Dollar Tree real quick. I started us. Do you have time for God? And are you bringing Dollar Tree praise or are you bringing your best? Come on. Is he worth it, y'all? Not just, yes, I praise them, now on to my thing. Is he, are you giving him what is fitting him to the degree of what he's done in your life, to how he is sustaining you? Are you bringing an offering that is fit? How willing are we, let's talk about the surrender stuff, how willing are we to bend the knee and surrender our will to his? Are we growing in that? Do you realize that the more and more you say no to where God is leading, the harder it will be to say yes? You have to work that surrender muscle. When the Holy Spirit is pinching, apologize to your boss. The more you say no, the harder it will be to say yes. Are you growing in your surrender? Or does it take you all day kicking and screaming to yield? Are you growing in your awareness when something or someone else is trying to usurp God's place on the throne of your heart? Can you tell? Are you around enough people so that they can see, like, hey, you know, listen, I don't want to get in your business, but you sure have been spending an awful lot of time in... You better get out of my face. You don't know what I do. Okay, all right. I'm just saying, I thought we were accountability partners. <laughs> you know what I'm so tired of? Accountability groups that have no accountability. It is a waste of time. <laughs> if you're not going to allow people to speak into your life, why? Why? Do you realize right now you are struggling in your worship? Whether you are struggling corporately or privately, the biggest struggle in your life right now is in regards to your worship. And when is the last time someone has been deputized to just say, hey, brother, I noticed when um, we were leaving out of Chick-fil-A and eating the Lord's chicken, your head almost spent around. That's appropriate. And you're right. Thank you, brother, calling me out. It's appropriate. I close with this. I listened to my old man, Louis Giglio, the youth pastor extraordinaire. I was, you know, we was kicking, Gene and I was doing youth ministry. We, a lot of Louis. One of the things that Louis just pulled out in one of his sermons that I just thought was so beautiful. Is that one of the reasons why God always promotes himself, 
I used to always just kind of stay fixated on this idea of, you know what, if you don't want to worship God because of how great he is, you know, he'll get the rocks to cry out because he's worthy. Amen, lights and walls. <laughs> and it is, I think that is true. Like he will get, he will get what he's due at some point. But do you know, the, Louis says, the reason why God promotes himself is not for himself. It's for you. It's because he's the only one who's adequate to sit on the throne of your heart. That your life is going to be better and more fulfilled when he's on the throne. He's trying to wrestle that boyfriend. He's trying to wrestle that career. He's trying to wrestle that body image off the throne because it's sucking life from you. Come get my yoke. Let me sit on the throne and you'll feel love like you never felt it before. I supply strength. I supply peace. That's what I do when I'm on the throne. I make your world make sense. I don't eliminate the struggles, but I give you my constant presence. When I'm on the throne, I bring life and not death. When Pharaoh's on the throne, what do you get? Life or slavery. You are who you worship. The good news is that you can choose to put a life-giving spirit who redeems and calls you a special treasure on the throne of your heart. I don't know that there's a better offer. So tell me today, what are you still holding on to? What is inhibiting your worship in public or private? And would you let King Jesus rest, rule, and abide over you? Let's pray.